Technicast hosts the research platform Invitations for a series of four conversations. Invitations is a series of online events around the relationship between maker, subject, screen and audience in moving image work, as well as the wider contexts of artistic practice. This series came about through conversations with fellow Techne-funded PhD students Judah Attile, Astrid Corporal, Therese Henningsen and myself, Mark Ariel Waller, here online with Donald Kunzi. This conversation is an Arts and Humanities Research Council funded event as part of the Techne Consortium for PhD Research Studentships. It's with great pleasure that I introduced you today, the academic and thinker Donald Kunzi, who I came across about 20 years ago when I was researching critical texts on the 1945 horror film Dead of Night. Oh, thanks, Mark. It's really a pleasure to talk to you again. Um, we had a good meeting in London last year, <laughs> back in the days when we weren't wearing face masks. Um, yeah, to quickly summarize this, um, I studied architecture as a youth. Um, I, I practiced it for a little while, got tired of doing that, uh, went into geography and at the graduate level. Um, didn't really get tired of that, but I did meet a, um, a very interesting guy who was a Vico expert and also a Casera scholar, Don Vereen. And I started doing readings under him and decided to study John Battista Vico as um, a philosopher who was uh, a kind of polymath, but especially interested in space and spatial relations. I found this fascinating and I was probably the only one among the Vikians to think of Vico in this way. Um, and I carried that forward with me when I returned to teaching architecture uh, in the 1980s. And I continued with, with that. Um, to my surprise, when I started reading Lacan, in also the 1980s, I believe. Uh, we didn't really have very good translations at that point. I realized that Lacan himself was uh, quite in tune with what Vico had been saying. And <clears throat> to the point of the kind of mad speculation I had that Vico had actually been a reader of Lacan. So I'm going to go back 20 years now, and uh, it was the moment when I, I was really thrilled to meet your work. I, I felt it seemed to make relations with some of my interests, particularly to do with the concept of metalepsis, which in narrative terms is to do with the idea of the narrator intruding into the world of the story, or the characters of the world of the story coming out of that framework into a wider world of narration. There's numerous examples of this kind of structure, like for instance in Don Quixote, the narrator Cervantes talks about meeting Sid Hammett Benengeli, who tells him the story, which is the story of Don Quixote. And then in part two, Don Quixote challenges a fake Don Quixote, 
who is written by a plagiarist. So there's a kind of movement in and out of the story world, which then brings us to engage with a particular notion of the uncanny. The thing that was thrilling about meeting your work was that you have developed a very specific and precise way of trying to engage with the theoretical positions that we encounter every day, but somehow find difficult. And so maybe, is there a way you could introduce your work for those who are new to it? Yes, I think that uh, is a good idea. Um, thanks, Mark, for uh, situating things in these ways. Um, what surprised me about Vico was, uh, of course, how modern he was, and at the same time, aware of uh, the wealth of antiquity that had not yet been realized. Um, going back to Cervantes, um, we have a case of a master um, of this transaction between the author and the work and, and the magic of storytelling, which is setting up a boundary and then violating it in ways that are consistent both with the story and with the idea of what an author is. Uh, Cervantes was not alone. Shakespeare was there with him. These two amazing guys happened to die on the same day. I think that's one of the miracles of uh, history. Um, but um, either they had a good intuition of things or they actually studied this. I, I vote for the latter. I think they, they knew something. They knew their ancient sources, ancient literature, um, which abounds. Um, you know the case of Plautus's play uh, where Socia, the servant, runs into uh, Hermes who claims to be Socia uh, and in clever ways refers to the same way that uh, Plautus is claiming to be everyone at the same time, uh, all the way down to, to Borges who works this out um, in detail. Um, if we go back, I, I, I always point people to two amazing sources in Latin antiquity, Apuleius, uh, whose novel, The Golden Ass, is kind of like a handbook of how to do it, um, how to do anything almost. Um, and Macrobius, a uh, late Latin writer who um, has several key surviving texts. Um, the Saturnalia is my favorite. Uh, but we can see all the way through uh, classical literature into People in history who who sort of get it right, uh, Gongora. I don't want to forget Gongora. Tip of the hat to him, um, who who manages to um, to display the vitality of Metalepsis without laboriously instructing and uh, instructing us on how to do it. Uh, they work through example and innuendo because I think the rule in Metalepsis. Uh, the half-life of missing the point would be forever. Let's start with the film that we were both drawn to, Dead of Night. This was the first British film released after World War II, a portmanteau horror film directed by Alberto Cavalcanti, Charles Crichton, Basil Dearden and Robert Hammer. The framing story is of a busy architect who awakes from a recurring nightmare. He travels to an idyllic country cottage for a meeting, only to find himself in the very place of his dreams. He recognises each of his hosts and recounts his unnerving dream to the very people he dreams about. In return, 
They each share an uncanny story that reflects the inversions of his dream. The story we want to discuss is the haunted mirror scene. Here, a newlywed wife gives her husband an antique mirror for his birthday. The husband becomes transfixed by the mirror, which is haunted through the murderous actions of its original owner. Well, let's get rid of the beastly thing. You know you don't have to keep it just because I've given it to you. I can take it back and they'll change it. But the trouble's not in the mirror, it's in my mind. It must be. The mirror's just wood and glass. Peter, I don't know what to say. Perhaps you're overworked. Why don't you see a doctor? I have. Couldn't find anything wrong with me. I think I shall have to go and see a mental specialist. Oh, nonsense. You're as sane as I am. Obviously, I can't be. Listen, I've been putting off saying this, but I think we ought to postpone the wedding. That's a bit drastic, isn't it? I don't know. Suppose I am going mad. Wouldn't be much fun for you, would it? Take you five years to get a divorce. Oh, really, darling, you're going a little bit too fast for me. Let's get the wedding over and then we can start making divorce arrangements afterwards. Peter, come with me, will you? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. What is it, darling? It's worse than ever. You're not there. But of course I'm there. I tell you, you're not. In the other room, I'm alone. Look in the mirror and tell me exactly what you see. It's just as it always is. Instead of my bed, there's the other bed. You can see it quite clearly. The posts have vine leaves twisted round them, with bunches of grapes at the top. The hangings are dark red silk. The walls are panelled. There's a log fire burning in the grate. It's no use, I tell you. I am going mad. He introduces the notion of some other world that appears in the mirror an overlap. He found himself to be superimposed into that world. At the same time, the other world seeps into his psyche. Donald, you have a very particular and clear analysis of this story. How do you consider it? Yes, uh, Mark, uh, you know me by now. I have way too much of a, uh, an analysis and very little of it is clear. Um, but Fortunately, we've been left with this document of the uncanny that uh, gives us almost everything we need to know. So if you had to go to a desert island with only one 15-minute film clip with you, you might want to take the haunted mirror tale with you. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a casebook study, uh, an encyclopedia of the uncanny. Um, it, it involves something that Mladen Dollar has talked about. Uh, he wants to expand the idea of anamorphosis to include the full range of subjectivity. Um, he wants to go back to Lacan's primary concepts, um, the mirror stage, the other, 
the death drive, uh, all the, the scopic drive, um, uh, all of that. He wants to, he wants to go through every every jot and tittle of Lacan and see it in terms of anamorphosis. I think the mirror tale is not just a good place to start, but if it's the only thing you ever look at in your life, um, you could get by. Um, it it requires us to uh, revisit the uncanny uh, in its classical classical literary form that we get it from from Freud's study, where where Freud cites Ernst Jentsch and says the uncanny is basically uh, an, uh, a dual atom. It it circulates its electrons between two nuclei, two nuclei, I guess. Um, one is the living person who is fleeing death, but in, in doing so, uh, that person constructs uh, the shortest distance path exactly toward the death that he or she fears. The other nucleus is um, the dead person who has forgotten how to die. Uh, so here we have a kind of succinct definition of the uncanny. Uh, in the mirror tale, we realize another feature of the uncanny is the uncanny is always situated within a reality we take to be literal. That is, we look into a mirror and we expect to see our reflection. What's behind us? Nothing else. No, no monkey business. As soon as the, um, the, the sort of dark hero of this tale doesn't see that, he talks about what he sees in terms of symptoms of madness. That he's he sets up the story in precisely psychoanalytical terms. He needs to see a doctor, and the doctor perhaps is first a neurologist, and then second of all, a psych, psychoanalyst. I'm not sure that they had that many in London at the time. Um, certainly a few. Um, but the nice setup we have with this is the, the sheer um, use of virtuality, which in Lacan is a primary idea, that the subject's world is structured by a mirror function, whether or not real mirrors are there in the room. What's that? Nothing. I just saw something. One quick way of mentally diagramming this for ourselves might be to think of a mirror as cutting space in two. You're standing in front of a mirror with uh, 180 degrees in front of the mirror and a reflected 180 degrees inside the mirror, um, making up 360 degrees. But if you take out the mirror, but say that there's still a mirror function, you have a human world, a subjective world that's literally 720 degrees. That is, there's a mirror function still there that is doubling what you take to be literal. So even though uh, we don't always restore the literal mirror as it, it is restored in the mirror tale, um, we have this feature of doubling that, that works. Um, I'm going to make the most aggressive argument I can in this case that this doubling relates to the way in which uh, the dreamer um, is kept in place by the dream. 
There's a little detail about the haunted Mary tale that is easily overlooked. Um, the, the fellow standing in front of it continually talks about his inability to move away from the mirror. He's, he's not just fascinated by the image in the mirror that is a room he's never seen before. He's transfixed. He tries to drag himself away. At the, by the end of the tale, we see that he's, he's just about paralyzed. He's sitting in a chair, passively magnetized by what he sees in the mirror that no one else sees. Uh, this is a key way to link it to the, uh, the function of the dream, which is to keep the dreamer totally paralyzed. And to do this, the dream must present the dreamer with a spectral reality that appears to be a full 360 degree world so that the dreamer will have the uh, illusion connected with uh, their own Euclidean assumptions about the world, that, that the world is a field and they can go anywhere they want if they have enough money and time. Um, they can visit faraway lands uh, with a microscope. They can penetrate cells and even atoms. Um, the Euclidean world is about visibility and accessibility. So the dream needs to replace this idea of accessibility by reversing the figure-ground relationship. The dream literally becomes a figure rotating around the fixed dreamer who now becomes the ground. Uh, so it's, it's quite a contrast. And if we take figure-ground relationships to be as primary as Gestalt psychologists uh, used to be arguing in the 40s and 50s, then um, we know that this, this function has a neurological home base somewhere in the brain that's very, very fundamental. Uh, so we're not just arguing Lacan here. We're, we're hopefully reaching out um, uh, to people who are interested in things like neural networks and saying, uh, yes, uh, nothing wrong with your theories. You just need to reconsider exactly what you mean by the word circuit. The circuit includes both the figure and the ground, the subject and the world, the here and the elsewhere. Um, the, the, the brain itself uh, doesn't stop in the cranium. It goes through the nerves to the tips of our fingers, and it doesn't stop there. It goes into the world where we have um, touch, action, uh, instrumental relationships with objects, and if we don't have them directly, we imagine them virtually. So we, we complete these circuits on a daily basis in ordinary experience, and the one thing we know about them is that if we are deprived of any segment of that circuit, delirium results, hallucinations result, phantasmagoria results. So our mind and perceptual apparatuses um, have this principle of infill. Whenever something stops short, uh, it's filled in. Um, and we know from early work, um, Freud was uh, aware of this, but every everyone else who was in li linguistics paid attention. 
um, victims of brain injuries in the First World War had two kinds of aphasia. And the infill took place according to what part of the brain the lesions were. And they tended to follow a very regulative pattern, either being based on contiguity or semblance. Semblance is the model for metaphor. Contiguity is a model for metonymy. This was true in Jakobson's linguistics and for many structuralists who also followed that. Uh, why that's important to us is that instead of separating metaphor and metonymy in a kind of systemic categorical way, we see in the device of metalepsis a way in which metaphor and metonymy are co-conspirators in the mind's ability to supply what is missing. For, for those of us that um, don't know what the what metonymy is, could you just quickly um, give us an example or two just to help? Sure. <laughs> let, let me give an example that we would all find most readily and tell you why that's wrong. Um, typically, metaphor is about seeing resemblances. Um, that is the, that's the poetic version you get of it in English class 101. Uh, metonymy, on the other hand, is associated with um, associative, um, linked in time things. So a metonymy would be a part of something that then is used to indicate it, indicate the whole thing. Uh, so uh, I see something, um, I, I say, could, could you lend me a hand here? I, I take that part of you, which is, is most characteristic and instrumental in whatever help you're able to offer me. And I use that as a metonymy for, come on, Mark, help me out here. <laughs> Lend me a hand. So um, it's easy to divide the brain uh, in a kind of stupid way, I would say, to say that, uh, yes, part of us is interested in resemblance, and that's our poetic side, uh, the ability to see uh, a sun and a sunflower and all this garbage. Uh, then the other part of our brain is devoted to rational, um, mechanically linked associations. Um, and I, I don't want to totally throw that out the window. There is something in saying contiguity and semblance have these radical independent motions from each other. But if we really want to understand how things work, we have to forget about the categories and look back at the division that first separated semblance from contiguity. Um, and even Jakobson later in his life <clears throat> admitted to the error of keeping those two things so far apart that people started to treat them as categories. Uh, metalepsis is, is usually defined as a metonymy of a metonymy. Um, and that's really challenging for those of us who are not up on uh, what metonymy was in the first place. Um, but metalepsis goes back to the boundary that created the metonymy and interrogates it. Uh, violates it, makes fun of it. Um, so um, if you look at the cartoons of uh, Steinberg, 
um, you will see a lot of references to metalepsis of, of uh, guys who are drawing themselves or um, I think there's a Escher has a famous drawing where a hand is drawing uh, itself. Um, so these self-references, these are self-intersections, which, which should alert us to something even more important. That is the feature of surfaces such as the Mobius band or Klein bottle that are limited, they're finite, but there's no place on them that we can find a, a boundary of their finitude. So all of these sources, uh, whether it's mathematical topology, which is very, uh, very useful in talking about um, these things. Um, but the idea, I think Susan Buckmorse put it forward in an article in the 1990s, that if we want to talk about circuits, we have to include um, the body and the world simultaneously. The, the, the subject goes out into the world only to find that there's a subject already there. And vice versa, the world penetrates the subject so that at, at our interior, we don't find a super subjectivity of, of secrets we don't want anyone to know about. We find an objectivity. Um, this is Lacan's idea uh, of the extimate or extimite, which he called it in French. Uh, he, I think, rightly could claim that it's a neologism. Um, but of course, we've been dealing with this, as, as, as you say, ever since Cervantes, we, we've known what extremity is all about. One of the questions that, that comes up when I have discussions with some of my fellow filmmakers and makers in this group, Invitations, that has led us here today, is, is about the political uh, use of an understanding of, of metalepsis. And, and I was really interested in examples of metonymy in relation to questions of like racist, racist abuse in language of picking up one piece of somebody's identity and laying that across a whole population as, as an example of a metonym. And there is something in metalepsis that allows for some kind of undoing of that, of the power structures of these linguistic arrangements. And you, in a um, it, in an interesting article, uh, you did you published on metalepsis as a site of exception. Is that right? Oh, that sounds good. A, a proposition that the that the the site of meeting a condition of metalepsis allowed for uh, what Rancier talked about as um, dissensus. And I wondered if you might might say a little bit about that. Um. Well, I think you're being quite original and um, and adventurous by by connecting this. Um, I I've been a little lazy connecting this to the political, um, and I I've wanted to. Um, I don't know if you know Baudelaire's uh, famous quote that if we understood each other, or no, I, I think it's like thank God we don't understand each other, otherwise we could never agree. Dissensus uh, to give um, a quick and dirty definition that everyone will hate me for bringing up because it's so simplistic it challenges your intelligence um, we all know the uh, experiment in psychology class where you see a jar of jelly beans 
and the uh, instructor asks us to guess how many jelly beans there are in the jar, and of course, we all get it wrong. Uh, but then he takes all of our guesses and he, he finds the average. And the average is generally within plus or minus two jelly beans. So collectively, we have understood the jelly bean jar. And it's quite inexplicable how we did this. Um, this principle was discovered turn of the century, late 19th century. Um, uh, it's sort of the unseen hand of the market, some have said, that this idea of self-correction. But this principle of, of a kind of collective knowing, thanks to an individual not knowing. That is, you have to take both sides of the equation seriously. Uh, the individuals themselves cannot claim that uh, my guess was closer, uh, mine was far apart. In the logic of taking an average, both the close guess and the faraway guess are absolutely essential. And, and look, I wouldn't be able to read Lacan or Vico if I said I knew uh, the least thing about them. Um, I don't read French very well. Um, I don't read Italian very well. And even if I did, I would not, would not know the Italian that Vico had written in. So I can't claim to be an expert in those terms. The only thing I can do is say, look, I may be the one person who's giving you a very distant view of these thinkers, but my view is just as important as your close by view. Uh, at the level of the census, we see something that emerges in scholarship, not something that's forced argumentatively um, through determinative critical structures. Um, I, I, I think you're a total genius on this. We need to take metalepsis to the level of the pol political. Look at what happens in the mirror tale. A guy stands in front of a mirror and he tells us that what he sees is compelling and real. Uh, Trump stands in front of a mirror and looks into it and channels Mussolini and possibly a number of other uh, despicable characters in history. He tells us it's real, and we, looking in from the side, don't actually see into the mirror. We see him being magnetized. And his performance is so compelling that some among us, actually nobody I know personally, thank God, um, says, look, this guy is channeling something important, and not only that, it brings out in us the despicable things we might see in a mirror if we were paralyzed as he is paralyzed. So, so what's happened in, in this election is that um, it's, it's, it's not surprising that Trump is the way he is. Um, we've tried to put analytical tags on it. Is he neurotic? Is he a sociopath? Is he hysterical? What is he? Um, the problem is not Trump. The problem is the people who look at Trump and like what they see in a mysterious way. Um, I, I wonder if I could use a kind of weird term at this point, the latent signifiers. Um, so the guy in the haunted mirror tale looks into the mirror. He doesn't see the signifiers the mirror ought 
to give him. He sees latent signifiers that have been pushed into the mirror a hundred years back by the original owner who has murdered his wife. Now think of the mirror as an unwilling witness. The mirror normally has to stand and take it. It sees everything we put in front of it. It can't move. It's pegged to the wall. This guy murders his wife. The mirror says, oh, I can't, I can't take it. I'm putting this, like anyone who witnesses a horrific scene, they put it into a part of themselves where it remains latent and they don't even have access to it. A hundred years later, this latency becomes evident to someone who is vulnerable, a husband who has an inkling of jealousy, just like the original owner. He stands in front of it and the latent signifiers themselves are alerted to the fact that uh, here is a new master. Then they offer up their significations that have been preserved for over a hundred years. And then the wife comes along. She doesn't see the latent signifiers. She can't. But she sees her husband. And her role is that of a healer. Uh, she knows that he's growing mad and she wants to help. And she finds, like any good physician, she takes a history of not her husband, who she knows fairly well, she takes a medical history, a psychoanalytical history of the mirror. This is how amazing the story is. The wife takes a psychoanalytical history of the mirror in the same way a psychoanalyst would sit down his new client and say, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. The psychoanalyst says, aha, you have some latent signifiers. That's why I'm here. If you pay me thousand dollars a month, we'll have some meetings and I'll let those latent signifiers out. So the wife is the psychoanalyst, thank God. Hmm. If you want to find out a lot more, you can look on Donald Kunze's website, Art Free Idea, A-R-T number three idea. Next time, Invitations will be hosted by Judah Atil, who will be in conversation with Taylor Lamel. <laughs>